I always have running around in my head the uh, books of the Bible song from Awana. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Uh, I said to Andy this morning, you have no idea how many times I've sung that to myself this week. And she said, how many times? I said, I really can't count. <laughs> I sing it to myself every time I'm trying to figure out where the, how the minor prophets are lined up. Uh, so Obadiah is, is where we'll be this morning. In Romans chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, Paul is speaking of God's sovereignty in salvation. He's speaking of God's sovereign control, God's sovereign choice. And in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 9, he quotes from the beginning of the prophet Malachi. Malachi verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to read them. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so there in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we read of God loving Jacob, loving the people of Israel descended from Jacob, and hating Esau and the people who descend from him, the people of Edom. You see that connection between Esau and Edom in verses 2 and 4 there of Malachi 1. Now, one, one commentator notes, helpfully, I think, that, that this is a, a Hebrew idiom, that it's not, it's not speaking of God having like a, a burning hatred of uh, in an emotional sense. But, but in choosing Israel... And not Esau. God has made, God has made a choice between these two, and it's. I'm sorry, I'm trying to read my own handwriting here. Yeah, it's it's a hatred that speaks of rejection rather than of animosity, and that that's an important that's an important thing for us to realize. Because how do we put together God so loved the world, the cosmos, everyone in it? But then it says God. God loves Jacob and hates Esau. Well, there is a sense in which God loves the world, and when he sent his son into the world, offers him to the world. And yet we know from places like John 6 and John 10 and Romans 9, where Paul was quoting this, that the only way people come out of death and into life, they go from trusting in themselves and their works of darkness, as John 3 would call them, and into the kingdom of light, is if God sovereignly works in their life, and, and that's pictured in, in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and 2 as something that God chose to do before the foundation of the world. And we don't understand, like that's a, a mystery to us how that all fits together, but there's a genuine offer from God to all that anyone who would believe can come to him. But the only ones who do believe are those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. And as is true of individuals, 
is true of nations. And so all of the nations of the Old Testament, all of those except Israel, are pictured by God as outside of his covenant love. He's chosen Israel. They are his people. He loves them. And those outside, even Esau, Jacob's brother, are outside the covenant. They are hated. They're rejected by God. But then we go on to see that they deserve that rejection. They do wicked things that earn God's wrath, God's hatred. God has chosen a people, a people through whom he would establish his kingdom, and a people on whom he set his divine and unfailing love. And it was Jacob, not Esau. Israel, not Edom. And you would think Israel would take this as like really good news, but it must have been when Malachi was writing, very hard for them to believe. We don't know exactly when Malachi was written, but it was written after the Babylonian exiles had come back into the land. The things that he's addressing are very similar to the situations we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so he's probably writing to a people who are coming back into the land and trying to piece together everything that has been lost. And they would be wondering to themselves, so this is the love of God? Our land was destroyed. Our people hauled off captive. And now this Edom that he says is going to be laid waste is still a strong nation. Really, God? Now, if it was hard for them to believe after they had come back from exile, how much harder would it have been in that period right after the capture of Jerusalem in 586 B.C.? As Jerusalem is lying in ruins, things are in flames, the people have been hauled away, and there is no hope for a future in human sense. How hard would it be to believe that God loves Israel, not Edom? And it's into that context that Obadiah speaks. We don't know the exact date that Obadiah was written. Very many different dates have been offered for it. But I think as we read this book, it it makes sense that it was probably written between 586 B.C. when Jerusalem falls and before 553 when Babylon attacks Edom. The temple is lost, Jerusalem has fallen, and the people of God have been led away captive. So I'm going to read the whole book. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses. I'm going to read it. The Vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will, shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? 
and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, and every man from Mount Esau shall be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord. The first section of this book focuses on the fact that God will punish the proud. You see that in verses 1 through 9. In verse 1, we're introduced to Obadiah. We don't know anything about Obadiah other than he wrote this prophecy. There's 12 people named in the Old Testament, Obadiah, and there's not any strong indicator that this guy is connected to any one of those. Uh, we, we just don't have much information about him other than he wrote this book. But as he brings God's message, it's given to him in a vision. And in verse 1 it says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And what we have is a picture of God sending out messengers to the nations to stir them up against Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. A similar thing happens in the book of Isaiah where God is pictured as calling out various nations to send them against one particular nation to punish them. And that's, Edom is the target of that here in Obadiah. In verses 2 through 3, we see how Edom is proud. They are confident in their own ability. They're, they're confident in their earthly security. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart who will bring me down to the ground so Edom is situated kind of to the the east and a little to the south of Israel and they are in a very mountainous region so they would have had cities that were high up uh, there are parts of Edom that go up as high as 5,000 feet above sea level which in that region is very high you know and they're so they're up in the mountains there and if I mean any time in history even now like, if you want a defensible position, where do you go? You go to the 
high ground. You go to the place in the mountains where it's easy to defend the passes coming in. And Edom says to themselves, well, I'm here. I'm safe. I'm up in the mountains. No one can attack me. No one can get to me. Not like those pitiful Israelites down there who are being destroyed by Babylon. Who will bring me down to the ground, they ask. And it's a rhetorical question, right? Who will bring me down to the ground? And the, the expected rhetorical answer is, well, no one. No one can bring me down to the ground. But then God answers that question. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, who soars higher than the eagle? Who sits higher than the stars? Who fashioned all of the stars and put them in their place down there underneath his feet? Is the Lord God. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. These people are proud. They, they feel like they've got it all together, like they are safe from this fate that has befallen their neighbors. And God says, you can sit on your high horse all you want, but it will not last. It will not last. Their destruction is going to be complete, we see in verses 5 and 6. That if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. But, would they not steal only enough for themselves? So like if, if thieves came in, they're still going to leave something. They'll take the TV and they'll take the safe, but like you're still going to have your cutlery, right? You're still going to have something left in your house. If, if grape gatherers came, and so grape gatherers would come, and if they took away your harvest, there would still be the gleanings at the edge of the field that they would take. But God says, it's not going to be like that for you, Esau. It's not going to be like that for you, people of Edom. It's not going to be God comes in and mostly destroys you. He's going to come in and abolish you entirely. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Every one of them taken away, demolished, destroyed. It, it's so bad that even their allies will turn against them. And we see that partially fulfilled. I don't Let's back up here. I don't think we've seen the full fulfillment of, of Obadiah. And we'll get to that more at the end here. But, but we see that begin to be fulfilled in 553 B.C. when the Babylonians, who had been allies of Edom as Jerusalem is conquered, as the people of Israel and Judah were conquered, the Babylonians turn against Edom and, and invade them. They still managed to survive as a nation after that, which is why I don't think it's the full fulfillment. But they, they turn against them, and all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. Well, why don't they have any understanding? Because God has confounded the wisdom even of their wise men. Verse 8. <coughs> Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Though your mighty men and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. They sat on their high horse. They thought they were safe in this world. They thought they had everything going for them. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. You set yourself up. But what does Proverbs tell us? That pride comes 
before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Are you proud? Brothers and sisters, when you look at your life, do you think about, oh, look at what I have done, look at what my hands have accomplished. I want to look very briefly at two stories from Scripture. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 29, says, And at the end of twelve months, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then God does it. He drives him out. Makes him crazy. Makes him go eat grass like an ox. Nebuchadnezzar looked at what he had accomplished. And in human terms, he had accomplished it, right? It's not like he's looking at some little tiny puny thing. He's the king of the most powerful nation in the world. And he says, look at what I've done. Look how glorious I am. And God says, I'm going to make you small until you realize that the Lord God reigns on high. Another example, which hits a little closer to home for me, because I've never really built anything worth looking at, it's Acts chapter 12, verse 20, following. It says, Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And then I love the contrast with verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod stands up, he delivers this great oration, or maybe it wasn't great. It says that Herod was angry with these people. They might have just been saying something to make him happy, <laughs> the voice of a God and not a man. But we'll give, we'll give Herod the benefit of the doubt. He makes a great oration. And the people say, how marvelous, how wonderful is Herod. And he takes that glory, he basks in it, and God kills him. Oh, that's the voice of a God? Got silenced. But the true word of God increased and multiplied. All our pride will be brought low. We're told in Scripture in multiple places that God opposes the proud. Now, if we could look at our lives and see something and say, if I get rid of that, it will stop God from opposing me. Wouldn't that be something we want to get rid of? And that, that's the case with pride. 
When we are proud, God is set against us. Rather, we ought to embrace lowliness and humility, meekness. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You want heaven? You want earth? All of it? Be poor in spirit. Be meek before God. God will not only punish the proud, God will punish the violent. Verse 10, Edom is told that because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And on the day, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, and on the day that his strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. God is opposed to those who oppose his people. There is no greater pride, probably, than setting yourself up against what God is doing in the world. And we see in the history of Edom, all the way back to when Esau is chasing Jacob around for like six chapters in Genesis, wanting to kill him, that Esau is opposed to Jacob. But then you come to the story of the Exodus, and in Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel are wandering around, and they want passage through the land of Edom. But the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, say, no way, you're not coming through here. The, the people of Edom opposed whom God, the, the one whom God calls their brother, their, their relatives, their distant cousins at this point, they're, they're ethnically linked, and, and God says, you should welcome him, you should love him, and instead, Edom has said no to Israel. They, they remain enemies to the point where in 1 Samuel 14, if you remember Saul's good military campaigns, in 1 Samuel 14 and verse 47, he's having to fight against the Edomites. Following that, we have a list of, of offenses in verses 11 through 14. In, in verse 11, we're told that they stood aloof as Jerusalem was plundered and then gambled over by Babylonian soldiers. They cast lots for Jerusalem, divvying things up. And then we see in verses 12 through 14 a list of do-nots that essentially function as rebukes for things that they're already doing and a calling of them to repent, to stop doing these things, to turn from their ways. Esau, again, God is holding out the opportunity for the people of Edom to repent. He says, don't do these things. Stop doing these things. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. He's just saying, don't gloat over their downfall. Don't sit on your high horse and say, well, yeah, because you're a weakling. Duh, Jerusalem. Not like strong old Edom here. Verse 13, he's telling them, don't take advantage of the plunder. Don't go in and say, score, free stuff. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat. Again, that word gloat over and over. In the day of his disaster, in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. 
And then in verse 14, we know that the Edomites from the book of Amos, chapter 1, we know that they were involved in the slave trade, and that seems to be what's spoken of here. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. It seems like they're taking whatever people were left, cutting them off from trying to escape, and selling them into slavery. And God says, do not do these things. And it's interesting there, over and over in those verses, especially 11 through 14, we hear the day of, the day of calamity, the day of ruin, the day of distress, the day of the day when things look really, really, really bad for God's people. But then as we get to verse 15, the day of takes on a new meaning. And God's judgment spreads out from being directed in this book against just Edom and spreads out to all the nations. God is going to hold every nation to account. Verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And listen to how he's going to judge those nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. And brothers and sisters, that's bad news for every nation. Because we, every nation that's existed in this world, has been guilty of heinous offenses against God. Ah. I just think of the nation that I live in here and I love. But for hundreds of years we condoned slavery. And about the time there was the, the period of slavery ended, then you had Jim Crow. And about the time we were starting to get past that, we started legalizing abortion. And it's like we cast off one thing we deserve judgment for and heaped on another. And, and the way that... that uh, a nation avoids God's judgment is not going to be through progressively advancing into the future or making America great again going to the past. It's going to be going down to our knees and weeping over the judgment that we deserve and asking God for his mercy and that people would repent, starting with ourselves. First Peter tells us that judgment begins with the household of God. Oh, how we need to repent. Every nation needs to repent because God is going to judge us for our deeds. We're told in verse 16 that those nations, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow as though they had never been. And it, it seems like they, they went to the, the mountain of God, they went to Jerusalem, and they were drinking in celebration. But God says, oh, you want to drink? You want to be happy? And, and, and that's a, it's an image of joy in the Old Testament, usually like the, the abundance of wine and the availability of celebration. But here God takes that and he says, oh, if you're going to drink in gloating over the defeat of my people, you're going to drink. And I'm going to pour out my, the wine of my wrath upon you and you're going to drink until you are no more i'm going to destroy you his wrath is fierce it's like the battle hymn of the republic how swift and i don't remember the exact words now <laughs> the terrible swift sword yeah he that, that's what god is bringing upon every nation one day 
that sets itself up against him. Violent nations, violent people, those who oppress others, those who abuse and hurt others, again, whether it's a nation or whether it's an individual person, one day God will bring that into judgment. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. You can think you're proud, you can think you're together, you can think you're okay, but sooner or later, God will cut the evil down. We just read Revelation 21, and that beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the people of God being brought down as a bride adorned for her husband. But then it tells us who's not there. Who's not there? Those who have been cast into the lake of fire, those whose names aren't written in the Lamb's book of life, those who practice all of these wicked things, cut off from that beautiful eternal life. Child of God, even as we see this sobering thing and we realize that that we too deserve that judgment, we can take heart because, as we're going to see here in a minute, there is a way of escape. There are those who in Mount Zion shall escape. Well, Well, what mountain do we go to to find connection with the Lord now? John chapter 4, the woman at the well is asking Jesus, what mountain do we go to? Do we go to this mountain here in Samaria, or do we go to Mount Zion? Do we go to Jerusalem? And Jesus says, woman, I tell you, the day is coming and is now here when neither on this mountain nor that mountain will you go to commune with the Father. The mountain where Jesus died, Mount Calvary, Mount Golgotha, Jesus is the one that we go to to be safe from the wrath of God because he bore that wrath for us. And if you are in Christ, you are safe from this deserved wrath. And if you are safe in him, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're safe in him, then you can look at this message of judgment, this message of God's justice being poured forth, and you can look at it and you can take hope. Because that means that every wrong thing that's ever been done to you, every injustice that you've suffered, every hurt at the hands of another, will be taken care of. You may feel like there is no justice in this world. And sometimes you won't see justice in this world for the wrongs that have been done to you. Romans 12 tells us not to take vengeance for ourselves because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And God's justice is better than ours. So we can trust Him. We can trust the God who punishes the proud and who punishes the violent. Last thing we see here in Obadiah is that God will save his people. God will save his people. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Esau, Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. 
and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Verses 17 and 18, God promises that a reunited Israel will one day consume Edom, burning it like fire. Verses 19 and 20, we see that it is promised that the Israelites would possess the regions, they would again possess their own land, but then they would possess all of these regions around them, to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. All around them they will possess. And then in verse 21, there's a picture of good rulers, of saviors, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and ruling not just Jerusalem, but those surrounding nations, and ultimately I think we can infer the world. They'll rule Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. But then it's interesting here, it says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the people of Israel at this time, the people of Judah who've just been led away captive, they're waiting for someone to come and sit on David's throne. They're waiting for a ruler to set up the new Davidic kingdom in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Someone to sit on the throne of David forever. But there was one who came and fulfilled both 2 Samuel 7 and Obadiah 21, whose kingdom was the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God. Matthew 12, 28 Jesus says, he's being accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons. He says, but if the, by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus came and brought the initiation of the kingdom. It doesn't see its fulfillment until what we hear in Matthew 25, where he comes back to set that kingdom up, Matthew 25 verses 31 and following, talking about the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. There, there is a promise that God will one day, how he's going to do it, it's hard to imagine in our time. He's going to reunite Israel and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom through, through that place. But are the promises we see here in Obadiah just for those people? Believers in Christ who happen to be Jewish? I don't, I don't think so. In 1 Corinthians 6, we won't turn there, but, but Paul tells the believers there in Corinth that the church is to judge the world. Revelation chapter 3, speaking to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says that those who endure, they will, they will receive a kingdom. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we will read this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. He's speaking to the church here. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Every kingdom will one day bow to Christ and be ruled by his people. Everything is given through Christ to the church. Paul tells elsewhere, all the promises of God are yes in him. And it all belongs to him. But it's like we talked about a couple weeks ago, only last week. As believers, we're co-heirs with Christ. So everything that is his is ours. Brothers and sisters, we need to lay aside the pride in what we've done or who we are. Refuse to participate in oppressing others and trust the Lord when they oppress you. You can trust him because his kingdom is coming. His justice will be served. And the only way to enjoy justice, the only way to be safe, is to bow to him now. Trust that Jesus has taken God's wrath for you. Would you pray? Father God. We thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For you did not send your Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Lord, we thank you that if we've trusted in you, you have saved us. And we ask that you would save many, many more before you return. Use us in that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.